Hello and welcome to another Perusia podcast. I'm Shabal Reish, your host. And here in our Sydney studios, I'm excited to share with you a conversation uh, to a good friend of mine, my uh, spiritual director, a priest of Opus Dei. He's lived with the saint himself, Saint Josemaria. His name is none other than Father John Flada, who is the author of this latest book we're going to talk about, uh, Dying to Live, which has been out just for a few months now. And we're going to be unpacking this book, a little bit about himself and what's next in store for the future. So let's welcome Father John. Father, great to see you. Thank you for having me again, Charlotte. Yeah, it's welcome. Yeah. Uh, I love having you <laughs> on. Um, it's been amazing. I've, I've just, we've just been chatting off, off, on, offline. Uh, uh, where, how far back does our relationship go? I think I first met you... Wow, 2003, and so that was the year I um, joined the seminary. I was a seminarian when then, so uh, that we're going back 19 years. So yes, that's, that's and, and the origin met. of that talk, that meeting was precisely that I was director of adult education in Sydney, yes. and then every new major document from the Holy See, we had a seminar on, and John Paul II had just given us um, Rosarium Virginis Maria brought out the mysteries of light. Yes. And so we had a seminar on that. We got you to talk about the rosary in the parish, I think it was. And That's right. uh, so that was when we, when we first met. And yes, I heard exactly. about you in, in Belfield. And, yeah, and since then, it's been a, an ongoing relationship. Yeah, I remember how <laughs> nervous I was there, my first sort of public talk on the faith. I never really spoke about the faith uh, publicly. Uh, and that was very early on in my sort of reversion. But uh, it was such a blessed night. I remember it was, it was a good, it was a good crowd, lots of good questions, and I discovered what you did there at Catholic Adult Education Center, which was wonderful. Um, and I share with people that was a real part of the foundations of my my formation. Mm. I, going there, I did the certificate program, um, and it was just great to learn about all the courses you had on offer there. Mm. Yeah, excellent work. Now, you um, you were not born and raised in Australia, so you were you're from the United States. Is that mm. correct? You, you, just a very quick intro about um, wh where you're from. You grew up, and then how did you ended up in Australia? How you you know, and 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 how how we are today. Well, as you know, I'm from the United States, and the average person listening to me guesses I'm from Ireland, yeah. but I'm not. I'm from the United States. <laughs> grew up in Wisconsin which is one of those central states bordering on Canada, okay. freezing cold in the winter. I was a small village called Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R, which is famous for plumbing ware and, and motors and generators for hospitals and yachts and so on. There was a small village of about, now it's 2000, so it's grown enormously since I was there. Went to the state school there, then went to Harvard, through a whole series of circumstances that led me to apply and get in. And it was there that I met Opus Dei. Okay. In my end of my first year, I was doing a retreat. I was studying chemistry, and there was an older fellow doing a PhD in chemistry, member of Opus Dei, and he mentioned what they had in the way of formation, which I needed. So I went along, and then about a year later, I asked for admission into Opus Dei as a numerae, which means celibacy, which is a bit of a a big decision for someone yes. going out with girls at the time, and then finished my degree. And then when I finished that, the directors of Opus Dei asked, would I like to go to Rome and continue my studies of philosophy and theology? I'd already finished two years of philosophy, which we all do as really preparation for the priesthood, but only few of the, the, the lay, the numerous will be ordained a priest. 
So I went to Rome, lived close to St. Josemaria for two years, hundreds of get-togethers, including a few on my own, wow. especially when I told him that I would be willing to be a priest if he wanted me. And then we walked up and down for 20 minutes in a courtyard, and he said many things, and I told him I'd be willing to be a priest if he wanted me. Finished there after two years, then they asked, would you like to go to Pamplona, Spain, study canon law at the University of Navarre? So that was the next three and a half years. And again, he came to Spain numerous times, and, and I saw him often there. Then um, I, well, I was writing to him after I was ordained. My ordination anniversary is tomorrow, by the way. Oh, wow. 55 <laughs> years. 55 years, look 55 at that. 55 years. I'm only, I'm only 52, so I was ordained before <laughs> I was born, which is what I say. And um, so then I was writing to him and saying, Father, if you want, I'd be willing to go anywhere in the world. And I was suggesting the Philippines because I knew the first members of the work that started in the Philippines okay. in 1964. They were studying PhDs in economics at Harvard when I was there. Then uh, the directors of Spain came to me just within a month or two of my writing those letters saying, would you like to go to Australia? And I immediately said, yes. And then they said, wait a second, this is not next to the United States. Think about it, come back to us, pray about it. So I confirmed my decision the next day. And then within a few months, I had the visa and I was here early in 1968. And the reason that we needed a priest here of young English speaking was to be the first chaplain of Warren College at the University of New South Wales, residential college for students. So we opened that in 1970 and I was there from 1970 to 1991, four years I was away in, in our headquarters, so to speak. Okay. And then the Archbishop of Hobart invited Opus Dei to go there, and I was chaplain of the University of Tasmania for six years. Then Archbishop Pell became Archbishop of Melbourne, and he invited Opus Dei to go there, and then he offered us the chaplaincy of RMIT University. So I went there and I spent four years as chaplain of RMIT, then Archbishop Pell became Archbishop of Sydney, and he found the, the um, Catholic adult education portfolio empty and asked me to come to Sydney. So I came back to Sydney in 19, 2002, did that job for nine years, and then Opus Dei wanted me back to be chaplain of one of the schools. So I did that, and I've been a chaplain in a school ever since. So that's, that's my spiritual journey. I don't think we've ever heard that in that express format. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't let go of the the fact that you were with Saint Jose Maria at that time. I think many viewers are probably wanting to ask what that was like. I mean, to be with uh, a saint, uh, a canonized saint now, but uh, back then, you know, he was revolutionary in the sense that what he did in Spain and uh, coming out of the, the civil Spanish, uh, the civil war in Spain, and then how Opus Dei was founded and the impact that's had on the world. It's just amazing. And, and so was Opus Dei even recognized as a international prodigy? I don't think it was in the, in the 60s. In 1962, we were the, the first uh, secular institute approved, okay. but St. Josemaria was involved in the drafting of the document Provia Mater Ecclesia, which came out early in 1947. Okay. And he realized that that document was trying to combine the statutes of a good number of new institutes seeking approval from Rome. And most of them were 
more religious than secular, even though okay. it was called Secular Institute, he realized we really didn't fit there. So he was always praying for some more definitive okay. juridical uh, situation, and that came about with personal prelatures. We became the first and so far only personal prelature in 1982. But living with a saint, people ask me, what was it like living yeah. with him? And when we wrote our testimonies, our reflections on him for the cause of beatification, I summarized mine into two parts, love for God and love for man, with the, the two great commandments. And love for God was just so obvious. He was filled with love for God, Our Lady, the Eucharist, the Holy Spirit, all the devotions that we know. And I can remember leaving some of those hundreds of get-togethers in those two years in Rome thinking, I have to love God more. He just exuded love. I likened him always to a spiritual volcano pouring out the molten lava of the love of God. And he wasn't necessarily talking about the love of God, but it, it poured out of him. Just on that, People sometimes ask me, did I ever think I would see him canonized? And the answer is absolutely no. And why is that? Because you were used at that time to the saints being canonized, being from the 19th century at the latest, and then back 16th century or whatever. They weren't canonizing contemporaries. And the bishops in the Second Vatican Council and probably afterwards as well wanted the process to be shortened, modified, so that we could be canonizing contemporaries with whom we could identify more readily. Mm. So the concept of canonization didn't fit in with a contemporary. So that's why I didn't think yeah, he'd be canonized. But did I realize he was the same? Absolutely. Love for man. He was the most affable, good humor, just charming human being that I've ever met. And I can say that than I've ever met. And they say sometimes it would take a saint to live with one in the sense that a saint is disagreeable. He's very close to God, but he can't relate to human beings. And I would categorically deny that for any saint, having lived close to one, and then Blessed Alvaro came after him. He was there in Rome at the time too, and he's come here. But he was the most affable person. If somebody loves God, they have to love their fellow man. They can't be disagreeable. They have to be easy to live with. Now, I suspect there's varying degrees of that. But in this case, he was so charming, so, so affectionate. And I was the recipient of a lot of that. So that was my experience with him. Yeah, wow. That's, I'd love, I feel like we need a show on it, just on that alone mm. one day and unpack a bit of that. But uh, beautiful, be beautiful. What a privilege. Mm. <laughs> but uh, it's been a privilege to know you, uh, Father, uh, almost 20 years now and, um, and to hear your long career and, and the impact you've had. But you've written quite a few books. You've written, um, we've, we've counted almost 11, 11 books. Um, now, this is, this is the latest, Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death. It's uh, 2022. Why now? Why this book? What gave you the, the inspiration to do this book? What gave me it was a person. It wasn't okay. a what. It wasn't a thought. I'm going to write a book on this. It was a friend making a retreat that I was giving in January of last year, 2021, who said, wouldn't it be good if there were a book on life after death for people who don't believe in it? 
who maybe wonder about it or who don't believe in it, mm. to show them that there is life after death. And then I immediately took to the idea. And why? Because I had already written a lot for the Catholic Weekly, where I've been writing a column every week for the last 18 years. 18 years. 18 Amazing. years. And I've written a lot. Some of the chapters of this book were, were modeled on things I had already written. Okay. So I had already written quite a bit on the topic. I was passionate about the topic because it's, it's the, the journey of life to heaven. Mm. And what this book pretends and hopes for is that it will help many people be saved who might not otherwise be saved by showing them there is life after death. There has to be life mm. after death. And here is why. So both the fact that I had already written quite a bit on the topic, plus I didn't know of any book like that and especially written from a Catholic viewpoint. Yeah. So um, I immediately took to it, started writing very quickly, helped by COVID. COVID brought about some benefits for the world, and this was one of them. I had time being a chaplain of a girls' school. The school was closed to everyone. It was teaching online. And during those months, I was able to spend a lot of time writing, so that, nice. that helped this book to get advanced. Yeah. And so it... it got written fairly quickly by within six months or eight so to speak it was it was finished first draft and then editing and whatnot and then it was finally finished in fact the dedication is interesting dedicated to ellie for ellie 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 was a girl who at the school where i was chaplain yes. in year nine at the age of 15 leaves school one day yes. and they ask where are you going she left early to go to get the results, some tests. Then that night sends a text message to her friends saying, I've got a brain tumor. And Ellie was going to die with this brain tumor. Well, she was given about nine months to live, but she lasted just over five years. And I followed her closely during all that time, was with her just a couple of days before she died. And she died on the day I finished editing the book. Wow. So I was going to finish the last chapter. I get news, Ellie has died. So I went to visit the family, and, and it was a very, very spiritual journey for her. Died extremely well as her family was, was transformed, in a sense, by her sickness and death. So Ellie was part of this, this journey of, wow. of writing the book, too. And she looked forward to dying. She was looking forward avidly to dying and going to be with God. And with her brother who had died about six months before, suddenly of, a, of an infection in the sinuses that went to the brain. So the family was um, Family's been visited so by, by a bit of suffering. Oh, wow, <laughs> wow. I mean, age of 20, dying at the age of 20. Yeah. What an impact. Thank you for sharing that story. I completely mm. forgot that link, but now mm -hmm. that, that's a great reminder. Remember praying for her and the family. Um, May she rest in peace. Mm. The power, and that's, it ties in, <laughs> dying to live. It reminds me, in many of your reflections, you even mentioned it here, when we, yeah, life doesn't end when, when we die. It, 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 and this is what I love, <laughs> it, dying to live. Um, and, and you've said something over and over over the years, and it's quite powerful. When we, every time we celebrate a birthday, it's not us getting older, it's us getting younger. We're getting closer and closer to our real birthday. I felt that was very powerful 
I'll never forget it. Uh, you've said it a few times. And it's almost like a, a baby in the womb. Uh, after nine months, it's, it's getting ready to be born. Um, so it's certainly alive, but it's going to be born into this life. Um, and that's it. We count from there. And so the same thing is here. We're here on earth, a bit like being in the womb, and we're preparing for birth. And our birthday is really in heaven, God willing, if we make it. But yeah, yeah it's, it's powerful. <laughs> yeah, and that comes from Archbishop Fulton Chin. That's okay. not my thought. Interesting. Because he says we're getting younger all the time. Yes. And that's a nice thought. We're getting younger all the time. Yeah. Then why is that? Because we're getting closer to our, our birthday to eternal life. He says if we measure our age from our birthday, well, we have two birthdays, the day we came into this world and the day we are born to eternal life. And we're getting younger, but we don't know how old we are. And, and therefore, that leads anyone, because we might say, oh, I can subtract my age from the average life expectancy in my country. And in my case, I'm past the average life expectancy. <laughs> but, um, but we don't have to reach our life expectancy. We can die of an accident tomorrow That's right. or tonight. So ready all the time. And this book will help people, I hope, to be prepared to get their life in order, live a better life, and whenever God calls them, be prepared and ready to go to heaven. Yes. Seven, now, just about the book, the structure, it's 17 chapters. And what's interesting is you deal with topics like the very simple question, um, placing a bet, I like that title, the soul, longing for what is beyond, is there a God? What is God like? These are very interesting topics you deal with and you... you it almost feels like, is this a bit of catechesis you're going along the way, teaching the person? But I remember a conversation we had before this came out. You did want to make it appeal to uh, also a secular audience as well. Uh, you wanted to reach the wider audience as well as a Catholic audience. But it was quite interesting, the question like, is there a God? Um, what, what was the inspiration behind the, the specific titles of the, each chapter? Okay, the book was intended for people who have no religion or who have a religion but may not be living life after death. Okay. So it was written primarily for them. For that reason, for example, the author is not a priest. It's, it's John Fodder, and at the back there's a little paragraph on who I am. It doesn't mention that I'm a priest. I'm just a Harvard graduate in chemistry, and, okay. and I'm interested in this topic. And the chapter on, on the existence of God, by the way, is all based on contemporary findings of physics, mm. cosmology, if you like, the origin of the universe, the origin of life within the universe, the complexity of the cell with DNA, the anthropic principle, which is that these, this planet Earth seems to be fine-tuned to support life, human life in particular. So the development of the book, in a sense, divides into two parts. It's not obvious, but when you read it, you'll discover that that is the case. The first, m most of those chapters are what we would call apologetics. Mm -hmm. So I'm arguing from reason to show why there has to be life after death. And then it gets to a point, the, the final chapter of, well, no, I was going to say, one of the main chapters of the apologetic part is near-death experiences. People have had a cardiac arrest generally, and they were clinically dead. The soul left the body, showing the existence of a soul separate from the body, and then often going through the tunnel of light to heaven where they experienced God. Some experienced hell. 
many have gone to purgatory and 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 communicated with people on earth. So all of those uh, aspects, the judgment is there as well. Yes. And then I, I go on to say in the next chapter, there is a religion which explains all of these near-death experiences. It experiences the soul separating from the body, the judgment, hell, heaven, hell for some, purgatory for many who, who um, report back to earth, so yes. to speak. And, and that religion is Christianity. So then the apologetics continues with Christianity comes from Jesus Christ. Who is he? Why should we believe him? So just a short chapter on who he is, when he lived, what he did, why we should believe in him because he said he was God and he did miracles that show he was God ultimately, of course, with his resurrection. We know most of what we get about Jesus Christ from the Bible. Well, who wrote the Bible? Why should we believe that? Here is who wrote the Bible, when was it written, and why should we believe the Bible? Are we, do we have any assurance that the texts we have today are similar to the ones we had then? And that's overwhelming evidence, the number of texts, manuscripts from the early centuries. And then within Christianity and, and the Bible comes this church which is called Catholic. Why should we listen to the Catholic Church? Well, it happens to be the one that Jesus founded with one head, with seven sacraments, and so on. So we justify listening to the Catholic Church's teachings on life after death, even though the reader at this point, and I emphasize that repeatedly, may not be a Catholic, doesn't have to become one. I mean, I would like that they did, but they don't have to be, but let's listen to what the Church says. Then the final chapters are the Church's view based largely on the catechism, but other sources as well, on death, judgment, heaven, purgatory, hell. Okay. So that's the development. That's a more catechetical um, Catholic doctrine set of chapters. Okay. And then the final chapter is, what must I do? So the reader, having got to that part, is now interested, what must they do to get to this heaven? They might be Muslim, they might be Jewish, they might be atheist, they might be Buddhist or Hindu or whatever. Mm -hmm. What must they do to be saved? That's that chapter, which, by the way, has led to another book. All right. Yeah, this is, there's another book in process, and I'm well advanced with it, and that has a very interesting origin, too, which was, if this book came as a suggestion of a friend who suggested a book on that topic. The next one comes from a reader of this book, Dying to Live, who really liked it, bought extra copies, gave them to his friends, as many people are doing. And then he said, please, could you write another book in this same style, which is very different from my other books, which are a more formal ex style explaining the Catholic faith. This one is conversational, informal, addressed to you, the reader, and so on. Yeah. And then, so I immediately dismissed that suggestion in the sense that I don't have any time to write more books. <laughs> but there's always time for something you want to do. You can fit it in here and there. So I was praying about the topic one day, just taking, if, if I wanted to write another book, what could it be on? And I said, well, if there's some topic related perhaps to this one, about which I've already written a lot, it might be easier to write. 
And then, perhaps in that prayer, the Holy Spirit or whatever, gave me the idea. I've written a lot on on, on moral life, and that is a development of that final chapter, what must I do? So a development of what must we do starting now to live a better moral life. And the first chapter will be on, well, it is, on objective morality. Because the person will be asking, well, I'm going to be judged by God, but how is he going to judge me? By how I see myself? By how he sees me? And how would I know how he sees me? Is morality objective? Or is it subjective and relative? So that's the first chapter. And then all the aspects of morals like conscience, virtues, the influence of emotions, uh, the types of sin and whatnot. And then going through the Ten Commandments as the basis. And I justify using them, which were given by God to Moses to the Jews and, of course, Christians and, and many others. Because the, the Ten Commandments are natural law. There's a whole chapter on uh, the natural law, which is the one on objective morality. So it's, it's a, a, in a sense, a synopsis, a condensation of moral theology. And I hope it won't be any longer than this book, which is about 160-odd pages. And I've already written probably two-thirds of it. Because, again, if, if I say, what have I already written? Well, it was that that series of DVDs, Journey into Truth, which yes. has been used on EWTN, the, the, the creed has been used by them, and, and with a book that goes with it. So yes. I'm using the text of that book, and the chapters on, on moral life in Christ as, as a basis. Now I have to reword it substantially and leave things out and change it quite a bit, but I, all the materials there, I don't have to do any more research. So that book is, is in process. And then if you ask me, which you could very well, what sort of title might this book have? And then I was thinking, the cover, I have it already, the cover's in mind. This is um, maybe premature and everything can change, but at the top of the book, it can say in fairly small print, sequel to Dying to Live. And then in fairly large print, preparing for the judgment, and the title can be the final exam. Mm, so I started, the, the initial chapter that I wrote was, we've all taken many exams in life, primary school, secondary school, perhaps tertiary, driving tests, and all sorts yes. of tests. Then if you failed some of them, didn't make too much difference. You could take it again or change your course of study if you weren't going to pass medicine or whatever. But there's one exam which is the final exam, and we can't afford to fail that one, and that's the judgment. So it's preparing for the judgment, the final exam. So this, wow. is, and this is how to prepare for the final exam. This book is about that. That's and again, excellent. it's written for the non-Catholic with some references to Scripture, a few to the Catholic Church. I try to minimize them so that the reader doesn't get put off by too yeah. much reference to the Church. But... I will say at the beginning that we've already justified listening to the church at the yes. end of this other book, and uh, so we can listen again. So that book is in, in progress. Wow, we'll mm. pray for that. That's exciting. Mm. And, and that should a... be out 
in the next, um, well, early next year, yeah, 2023. Excellent. I will have to have you back to talk about that one. <laughs> um, but a bit on this one, um, it interests. So, so basically, an atheist could pick this up and read it, and uh, agnostics and, or those who have fallen away from the church, you recommend they could. This could be something we could give uh, those types of people. Absolutely, okay. starting with this one, perhaps because it justifies belief in God, and a number of the arguments that we give in that chapter. Chapter five, I happen yes. to know it is chapter five, is there a God, have convinced atheists to believe in God. Yeah. Amongst them, Anthony Flew, the British, yes. he was a theoretical atheist. There's practical atheists who live without God. There's theoretical atheists who write books on atheism and deny that God exists. Mm -hmm. And he was convinced by the complexity of DNA to believe in God. And so his book, a uh, very short book, is, is entitled, um, There Is a God, but the way it's written is in print, There Is No God. And then no is crossed out by hand, and above no is written an A, there is a God. Wow. So that's his story of conversion from theoretical, convinced atheist, and a very prominent one, to believer, at least in a God. That's fantastic. Oh. Now, I looked him up on, on Google, and he has written a number of books on atheism, including okay. very thick books. They weren't called There Is No God. But um, yeah, interesting. atheists have come to believe in God through some scientific yeah. evidence yeah. from the last century. Do you mind if we just touch on one or two examples of that? Just, it might be interesting for those. You touched on near-death experiences. Is there anything you could share about your, your research there? Is there what, what do you mean by near-death experiences? Are people having some supernatural um, experience there that we can measure or we can, we, we can learn about? And yes. What, what, what do they describe? Do you share that in the book? Yes. Oh, yes. What, any examples? Uh, yes. Um, a near-death experience is a, a experience in which a person has been clinically dead, generally a cardiac arrest, hmm. the, the cessation of um, heart function or whatever, and then they come back to life, obviously, to tell us about what they experienced. There are thousands, thousands of documented cases, and I deal with two books on them which have been bestsellers, and the experiences of thousands of people, of all religions, of all ages, including the famous Colin Burpo, who was about four when he had the cardiac arrest, and there were a Protestant family in the US, family praying for him, and then his soul was hovering above his body. So the first stage is that then many go through the judgment in which they experience, the thing that struck me, a number of people say, in the judgment, I not only saw my whole life as God sees it, but also I was able to feel what that other person felt when I insulted them, hit them, or maybe did something good to them. Wow. Feeling what the other person felt. That's, that's frightening in a sense. And then many go through the tunnel. The tunnel is a very common experience to a light, and then they experience a warmth, a joy that's just unimaginable and indescribable. Yeah. And most of them don't want to come back. If they're given the choice, they don't want to come back. A few experience hell either from the outside or within the, the, the fires and the, and the punishment of hell. And then purgatory is, is lesser seen in the 
in the near-death experiences, but at the other, on the other hand, there are, there are books of probably hundreds, maybe thousands of accounts of souls in purgatory communicating with people on earth. There's, there's many books of that. So that's the synopsis of near-death experiences. One that particularly impressed me, and it comes in the chapter on placing a bet, oh, yes. and why that title, Placing a Bet. It deals with Pascal's wager. So here you have Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, mathematician, who wrote his pensée, his thoughts, and in that he's got a chapter on, on the wager. And what he looks at is, if you didn't believe in God, and you didn't believe in life after death, but you had to bet on which would be safer, he concludes, and I won't go through all the argumentation, that it is a much safer bet to bet that there is a God and there is life after death than to bet that there isn't. If you bet that there isn't and there is, you're going to lose a lot. <laughs> if you bet that there is a God in life after death and there isn't, nothing to lose, you've lived a good life <laughs> here. So in that chapter, I, I relate the, the case of Ian McCormack, who was a New Zealander. He was, I think he was 24, he was traveling the world. He was an atheist, he grew up in New Zealand in a, in a Christian family, his mother believed in God. So he's traveling the world, he finds himself in Mauritius. He's been in many countries, but now he's in Mauritius. He's living with the Indians there, the, that is the, the indigenous peoples, who are fishermen. They go out at night to dive and he would go with them. And he said they thought the water was cold, so they had a full wetsuit on. He had a partial wetsuit with short sleeves. And they would do this night after night, going in maybe about 11 o'clock. So he gets into the water this night and suddenly feels a tremendous stinging on his arm. He said, what was that? Okay. And then he gets his torch and he looks around and he sees the box jellyfish. And this is the one that will kill you in maybe 15 or 20 minutes, paralyzing your wow. nervous system. So by the time he gets back into the boat, he's been stung five different times. His arm is all scratched. They have two meter long tentacles with barbs on them. So he's been scratched and the toxin enters through those scratches. Wow. Gets out of the boat. And without going, I'll shorten the story, there's some very interesting <laughs> things that happen on the way to the hospital. He finds himself on the way to the hospital in an ambulance. And then he sees that God showed him a couple of images. One was his mother praying for him. And another one was the words of the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses. He just saw that somehow, lying in the ambulance. And then he is articulating Pascal's wager to a T. He says, I'm dying. He knew he was dying. Yes. His arm had swollen to twice its size. His, the toxins were moving up his legs. He was getting progressively paralyzed, finding it more difficult to breathe. And this is all on, on, on YouTube. You can watch. Wow. He's got various times when he explains this. And, it, it's a fascinating story. He says, I'm dying. As an atheist, I don't believe in life after death. But I'm, but as a gambler, I'm gambling with my life here. What if I'm wrong? So he's just articulating Pascal's wager as an atheist. He doesn't believe yes. in life after death. <laughs> but 
as a gambler, I'm gambling with my life. What if I'm wrong? So then, with that, that um, image of the words of the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses, he is moved to be sorry for his sins. He arrives at the hospital, uh, collapses, and is, is unconscious. I think it was 15 or 20 minutes while they're, they're giving up. I think they decided he, wasn't, he, he was dead. He wasn't going to come oh, back. Wow. But then he went, this his first experience, uh, his near-death experience was, was hell. Darkness, coldness, gruff voices. And then he said, and that's where I would have gone had I not been sorry for my sins. And sorrow for sins is crucial for a person to be saved and not go to hell. And then he went to heaven, and, and then he gets to heaven, and he's in this absolutely blissful experience of in the, uh, life. And then he is offered in some way the possibility of come back in, coming back to earth. And he thinks, I would rather stay here, but if I stay here, my mother is going to think that her son went to hell. He died in Mauritius, the body will be taken back to New Zealand. I suppose yeah, my, my mother's going to think my son went to hell because she knew he had committed every sin in the book. He acknowledges that. <laughs> and then, so he said, no, I've got to go back. So he comes back, goes back to New Zealand, and it turns out that in the very moment when he had suffered that attack from the jellyfish and was dying, his mother was praying for him. In that very wow. day, at that very hour. So it's an extraordinary story, and th there's lots of stories in this book. If somebody just wants to read a lot of stories yes. like this, they're Amazing. there. Oh, mm. wow, thank you, that's great. We, get, we can do that and reference those. My goodness. Um, can, uh, the, to touch on um, the feedback you've received, so it's now been out for uh, quite a few months now, um, and, and Catholics and non-Catholics have read it, what has the feedback been uh, in people reading this book? Well, the first one is the sales. Now, I don't know how many the, yeah. the publisher has sold, but I, I run into people very often. Yes, yes. This morning, for example, we had a function at the school where I'm chaplain, and somebody comes up and says, I just bought a copy of your book. I got it on Amazon, and it was the last one they had. <laughs> now, they'll get in more. Or, but then the editor of the Catholic Weekly was he said, I was sitting on a train and the fellow sitting next to me was reading your book. <laughs> I go to Tasmania once a month and down there a number of people have said they, well, they bought the book and they're reading it. And people are buying multiple copies. Yeah. And amongst the feedback from the, the, that first wave, as I describe it, of readers, which is generally the Catholics, people that yes. come to contact uh, through um, various Catholic channels, and they're buying the book and, and, and buying multiple copies. That feedback has been eminently positive. And then the second wave, we're still receiving just very few stories there, but one of the ones that I'm really happy about is an engineer with a municipal council who mm. bought several copies, and he said when he was buying them, I wanted to get some extra ones to give to some of my staff, including two Muslim women. And then about a month or two after saying that, he came to see me and he said, one of these Muslim women from Indonesia 
is reading your book. She really likes it. And she's asking all these questions about the Catholic faith, Fantastic. including, can I go to Mass with you? So she has gone <laughs> to Mass with him on a weekday because he walks to Mass in the nearby uh, Catholic Church. And she's gone to Mass with him a few times and asking a lot of questions. He sounded almost worried. What if she wants to become a Catholic? What's the next step? I said, well, that's easy. You give her my other book, Journey into Truth, and she yes, can learn right. the faith. So that's a very positive, encouraging story. We haven't heard enough yet from those. Although Ellie's father uh, is a non-believer. I've given them a okay. copy. I autographed a copy for them. They're very happy to get it. He's reading it, and um, I haven't spoken with him since, okay. since That'll then. That'll be interesting. Yes. Yeah, I'd love to hear what he thinks. <laughs> mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's, we, we've noticed that Perusia, it's on our website, perusiamedia.com, and we did a launch just in the office here, and I remember we sold out of the books that we had here, mm. and then we had to order some more, and they've gone, we've reordered again, and people are buying sort of in batches. They're buying mm. five or ten mm. to give out to people because they see the value of this book. So it is one of those books that you just want everyone to read because of the reality of it. We all are going to die. It's one thing we can guarantee. Um, are we going to be ready for that death? And uh, I'm now looking forward to your second book because Judgment Day. <laughs> or yeah. The, yeah, that's going to be interesting. Um, can we just touch on, before we sort of close here, that there's, you deal with the four last things, death and judgment, heaven, hell. And uh, imagine um, what, is, what is heaven like? What is hell like? Um, do, do, can you describe a little bit about what we can expect? And then, you know, I know it's a big topic, but, but just sort of those who are wondering, doubting whether there is a hell or heaven, what are we, what are we talking about here? Uh, an eternal happiness and is this an eternal suffering what what are they how do they contrast you know well the um well, you have a, a general sense of heaven and hell everybody does the catechism has beautiful words to mm. describe heaven and i think one of the most felicitous paragraphs is the one on hell well there's a, quite a few on hell mm. but let's start with heaven and it says um <laughs> i preach on this so often preaching on the last things that i practically memorize the, the words <laughs> of the catechism. But heaven is described as communion of life and love with the Blessed Trinity, the Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the blessed. So communion of life and love with the Blessed Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And then Our Lady, because she's above even the angels, and she is our mother. We've hopefully gone to her a lot in life and have mm -hmm. a devotion to her. We will see her there, and we will see her there in her humanity because she was assumed body and soul into heaven. And like St. Josemaria once was asked, what does Our Lady look like? As if trying to trap him into saying that he had seen her. Now, I have no evidence that he has seen her, but his answer was very beautiful, hmm. very beautiful, very beautiful. And people who have seen Our Lady on earth in the various apparitions, when they described an image that they had seen and somebody drew the image, they invariably would say, no, she was more beautiful than that. So <laughs> you try to draw the most beautiful woman you can. That's Our Lady. Well, we will see her. We'll see our Lord in his humanity. Yes. Then the angel, so our guardian angel who's looked after us, that myriad of angels beyond all counting as well. 
um, there in heaven giving glory to God and looking after us here on earth. And then all the blessed, I mean, our, our relatives who have died yes. before us, the canonized saints, our patron saint, our favorite saint, all of them there. Again, a vast number. Well, that's, it's the, mm. the saints beyond all counting, not the angels. But the angels are beyond all counting too. Well, you can always count a finite number of people. There's, it's not infinite. So that's, that's heaven. And then it also is described as supreme, definitive happiness. Now that contrasts with the great happiness we have here on earth. But this is supreme. We have happiness when we have a good holiday, when we eat a good meal, read a good book, see a good film, have a happy marriage, have a celebration of something, happiness. But it's, it's not supreme because it's dealing with a finite good. Happiness comes when we have a good. The, yes. the goods here on earth are finite. God is the infinite good. So when we have God, it will be supreme happiness, greater than we can imagine here, plus definitive. Here the happiness comes and goes. We get sick <laughs> and the, uh, the holiday ends or the book, we get finished, we read my book, maybe we like it and we enjoy that and then it's finished and now what do I do? I'll read the next one. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but, so that's, that's heaven, indescribable, supreme and eternal happiness with God. Now the word eternal has to be uh, understood too because God is in eternity, no beginning and end. Simultaneous possession of interminable life is Boethius's definition of eternity. Only God is in eternity. The angels were created, he says, they and we when we get to heaven are in of eternity, which he, he doesn't want to describe how it is, but it says somewhere between eternity and time. Here on earth we live in time. So heaven, then hell. And here it's, it is the two main punishments of separation from God. We were made for God, St. Augustine. Lord, you made yes. us for you and our heart is restless until it rests in you and the soul in hell will never rest in God, and the punishment, the pain of sense, likened to fire. And even the many souls in purgatory who appear on earth, many of them appear as if on fire. There's lots of accounts of that. Some of them are in the book. And, and our Lord, too, in, in Matthew 25, when he's describing the last judgment and the king coming, sitting on his throne and separating the good from the evil as the man, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will say to those on his left, and depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And depart from me is the pain of loss. You cursed into the eternal fire, eternal fire, pain of sense. Now, it's extremely difficult to get one's mind around somebody in fire, for example, forever. Here, if somebody gets burned to death, it doesn't last very long, but it's eternal. So it's very difficult to imagine that, and we say, how can we come reconcile that with a merciful God? Why does God send anyone to hell? And Pope Benedict, and this is all in the book, materials that I've been using and preaching in retreats for a long time. Yes. Pope Benedict, he said, God uh, does not wheel out his happy. No, God is, is a true father. He's not a magician 
who in the end wheels out his happy ending. He is a true father who assents to human freedom even when it is used to reject him. So God, I always liken him too, and our Lord intended this, the parable of the prodigal son. Yes. The son wants to go away, take the money that belongs to him, try a different life of freedom, whatever. And it's not described in the parable, but that father would have done everything to dissuade yes. his son. Don't go, son. We need you. We love you. Stay here. You could lose that money. You could get into trouble. But he lets him go. He's a father. He could build a wall around the farm. He could chain his son to the bed. He lets him go. That's a father. But he welcomes him back. And this is God, the merciful father. And so God allows us to sin. And but we will suffer if, if we, and, and as the catechism says, those who die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love remain separated from him forever by our own free choice. So that's, that's hell. It's difficult to imagine. But yeah, these are realities. These are realities. And purgatory, for the many people who, oh, that's a Catholic invention. That's not in the Bible. Well, it's alluded to in the Bible. It's not, strictly speaking, proved by the Bible, but it's there, alluded to, and the tradition from the beginning has been souls, praying for the souls and departed. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, all this is in the book, Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death. Amazing. I, I want to I um, go through it slower now and, and reflect on it. And I think everyone of all ages, would you say... Um, Teenagers, young adults, uh, would children read this, or is there is there sort of a, a target audience uh, age-wise? I would say a, a young person, somebody less than twelve, isn't going to be able to understand it fully by the time you're fifteen or sixteen. Definitely. Okay. And um, so, and adults especially, and non-believers, it's written for them, yeah. as the next one is is too. I have a fifteen-year-old son. I hope. He could read it. Well, uh, just try it. Just say, yeah, read yeah. this. It's short, and it's written in a yeah, simple style. One is. of the teachers at school just uh, maybe three days ago, came. she came running up to me because she saw I was there, and she came running up. Father, I've just read your book. It is so easy to read. <laughs> so she finds it easy. I think an average young person will find it easy. Wow. Wow. Excellent. Well, looking forward to that. It is now available um, at the Perusia Media website, uh, Connor Court have published this and it's on Amazon as well, those who have Amazon accounts. This is Dying to Live. Um, thank you very much for sharing this, Father. And I do have to point out, you did touch on the moral life, which what you're going to the next book. There is uh, an academy course coming out. We filmed already mm. on the moral life and we're looking forward to the release of that. And who, who gave that? Yourself. Oh, <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> but uh, but it, it was, uh, you did a, you've got currently on our academy uh, website, um, a 12-hour course on the creed, which, which corresponded with the book, the creed, and there's the journey to truth, which has been fantastic. Mm. But we're looking, very much looking forward to releasing the moral life, mm. uh, which won't be too, too far away. And that might come at a good time with the next book. So yes. um, mm. th this is almost providential <laughs> that they'll come out very similar times. Um, so I want to thank you very much for joining us. Um, if you don't mind, uh, Father, if there's a way you uh, could give us, a, those viewers, listeners, a, a final blessing or something like that, mm. that would be wonderful. Um, and any, any final thoughts just as we, as we wrap up here? Well, the, the goal of this book was to get people to heaven, to, yeah. to be saved. Yes. But 
along the way to get people back to the religion of their upbringing, yeah. whatever that might be, because as the Second Vatican Council says in Lumen Gentium, it's paragraph 16, whatever is found of goodness and truth mm. in other religions is a preparation for the gospel. And there's goodness and truth in all religions, fullness of what Christ wants to give us is in the Catholic Church. But mm, yeah. they have elements, and that leads them closer to God, closer to being a better person. So get people maybe back to their own religion, and I, I really hope and expect that this will bring some people, well, certainly back to the Catholic Church as well, because that's recommended for all, but also maybe into the Catholic Church. There's enough reasons to show the Catholic Church as one that is well worth listening to, and many people will be led by the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that can do this into the Catholic Church. So that's, that's a, a hope for this book as well, and maybe in conjunction with the next one. Yeah, excellent. Basically, everyone needs to mm. read this book. Thank you, we're, we're praying for you. Please pray for us. Yes. If, um, as, as we close off, if you don't mind uh, giving us a blessing, yes. that would be wonderful. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain forever, and remain forever in heaven. God bless you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very mm -hmm. much. And, uh, and you do have a blog online. People yes. can actually follow that. What's the address for that? The, the address for the blog, just put Flader, which is F-L-A-D-E-R, blog or meditations into, into your, your browser. Okay. And it comes up straight away on Google. And what it has is, actually it has a, an interview with me from another publication on okay. the book, but mainly meditation. So half hour meditations on all things spiritual and Catholic. The last one is called Lessons on the Assumption, where we look at the assumption of Our Lady into heaven and what can we draw from that for our own spiritual life. But there's over a hundred half hour meditations there. So anyone that's interested. Beautiful. Go there and you can find plenty to pray about. We'll get a link in the description as well for that. Well, thank you. God bless you. Thanks, everyone, for watching. This is Dying to Live, Reflections of Life After Death. Get your copy at perusiamedia.com or on Amazon or anywhere where good uh, bookstores sell books and, and get yours today. That's another show at Shabal Raish is my name. As you know, please uh, subscribe, be in touch with us. We are excited about upcoming events coming up. We've got Deacon Harold, Tim Staples coming in October. To be up to date with everything, go to our website, perusiamedia.com, pop in your email, and you'll get all the notifications. Thanks again, and God bless you.